homage to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Today we're looking at what makes it difficult for us to understand Dhamma. Why do we struggle with understanding Dhamma? And also flowing on from that, why do we struggle with uh, advancing or progressing on the spiritual path, the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path? The main sutta that we're looking at today is the Anumana Sutta, and it's the Discourse on Inference. It appears in the Majjhima or Middle Link Discourses, and it is Discourse number 15. Now this is a teaching that Venerable Mahamogalana gave to the monks, and it was really about what makes one difficult to instruct and difficult to admonish, therefore difficult to give feedback to, and how that lends itself to make it difficult for someone to understand Dhamma, learn Dhamma, and therefore progress in Dhamma. Likewise, Venerable Mahamogulana gave the opposite, the qualities that make one easy to instruct, easy to admonish, and therefore easy to give feedback to, which lends itself to understanding Dhamma, being able to be taught in Dhamma, and also easy to uh, progress on the path. Now, what we'll find is that there are many benefits in understanding this sutta, in learning the knowledge pathways contained in the sutta. So we'll look at some of those benefits. We'll also look at some of the supporting suttas for this teaching, that in studying any sutta or teaching of the Buddha or the Arahants, it's always good to see whether this teaching or the uh, main components of the teaching are repeated or replicated throughout the Sutta Pithika. And in the case of Anumana Sutta, what you find is that there are many suttas that either intersect or support this teaching, which gives us confidence to practice it. We'll then deep dive into the qualities of what obstructs a person from understanding Dhamma, learning Dhamma, and also uh, progressing on the path. And we'll also look at the qualities that support us or support a person towards understanding Dhamma, learning Dhamma, and then progressing on the path. We'll also go through Venerable Mahamogalana's method for inferring, which is where this Anumana discourse comes from. The name of the sutta is Anumana, and Anumana is to infer or to conclude. So he gives us a method for how we can conclude or measure ourselves, what kind of person we are, what type of qualities. That's quite important because if you can take measure of yourself and come to some kind of conclusion or inference, it's from that point that you can take action towards either adjusting, improving, or continuing in, in terms of one's practice. And then we'll take a look at the importance that Venerable Mahamogalana places on regular review of oneself, and there's a simile that he gives towards the end of the sutta, and we'll go through that. And then lastly, we'll look at how do we meditate on this sutta. So let's begin. Let's start with an introduction to the Anumana Sutta, with uh, who is giving the teaching in this sutta, as well as a bit of a bird's eye view of the sutta architecture and what are the comp key component parts of the teaching. Venerable Mahamogalana was the teacher in this Anumana Sutta, and it's useful to refresh our minds about the qualities and distinct features about Venerable Mahamogalana. 
As we know, he was one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha, along with Venerable Sariputta, and he was renowned for his psychic abilities. In fact, the Buddha uh, praised him as being the foremost at psychic abilities of his noble disciples. What's also known is that Venerable Mahamoglana, along with Venerable Sariputta, they were nearly equal to the Buddha at giving instructions to the monks in order to attain Nibbana. And that's an important distinction for us to take on board as we go through this particular teaching of the Anumana Sutta. What's said about Venerable Sariputta was that he was able to bring people onto the path and to attain the early stages of awakening. But it was also known that Venerable Mahamogulana, through his precise instructions, um, the refinements that he gave to the students, to the disciples, that enabled them to attain final liberation, to attain Nibbana, to become Arahants. So that's pretty key to note in taking on this instruction from Venerable Mahamogulana. What is also useful to know is that Venerable Mahamogalana, for all his psychic abilities, he was someone that travelled the path and took the, the mode of progress known as Dukkha Patipada Kipabinya, which is painful way with quick realisation. And so during the course of his awakening, he actually received some clear instructions from the Buddha. And this was before he became an Arahant. He was actually experiencing some trouble during his meditation, and that was that he kept nodding off. And there's a sutta that uh, presents itself that shows where he takes instruction from the Buddha. And this is the Pachalaya Mana Sutta, which appears in Nikaya chapter 7, discourse 61. And this was clearly before he became an Arahant, and the Buddha gives him uh, seven means as a knowledge pathway to overcome sleepiness, this nodding off. And clearly, Venerable Mahamogalana took that advice and soon after became an Arahant. Before we go into the detail of the Anumana Sutta, it's good to look at the architecture of this teaching to give us a bird's eye view. When you look at the bird's eye view, you see that there are four distinct parts to this teaching given by Venerable Mahamogalana. The first part is from paragraphs 1 to 3, and this is where Venerable Mahamogalana looks at the 16 qualities that makes one duvajo, which is uh, difficult to instruct or difficult to give feedback to. Then you have part 2, which is paragraphs 4 to 5, and these are the 16 qualities that makes one suvacho, or easy to instruct, easy to give feedback to. And then the third part is paragraph 6, which is Venerable Mahamogalana's method of inferring or coming to a conclusion about oneself. And then finally we have part 4, which is paragraph 7 to 8, and this is where Venerable Mahamogalana emphasizes the importance of reviewing oneself and provides a very important simile. A very common question when it comes to this sutta is why it is called Anumana Sutta when the emphasis is usually given to Duvacho and Suvacho being those qualities that make us both 
difficult to instruct or easy to instruct. But clearly Venwo Mahomogalana has given us a method in part 3 of this sutta which talks about anumana. Now anumana we've translated as inference, being able to infer. But there's also conclusion is another translation which means to conclude, also to come to an opinion about oneself. Um, it could also be deduction which means to deduce. Uh, determination to determine and then finally measurement to measure and this is an important part of this teaching is there's a method or means for us to actually infer or to come to a conclusion about oneself and this is particularly helpful moving forward that as you want to progress on the path you have a means for taking measure of yourself and coming to opinion about whether certain things need to change and so this lends itself to what Venerable Mahamogalana emphasizes at the end of the sutta, which is being able to regularly review oneself from this particular aspect. I'd like to now go through some of the reasons why this sutta is considered very important and held in such high regard. Uh, there'll be some sutta references that we can also look at. I'd like to go through one of the verses of the Buddha which appears in the Dhammapada and it's number 76 and it's known as the Radhathera Vatu and this is the story about Radhathera and he was residing at the Jetavana monastery and the Buddha uttered this particular verse in reference to Radhathera who was at that time a poor old Brahmin. So Radha stayed in the monastery doing small services for the bhikkhus and for his services he was provided with food and clothing and other needs but he wasn't encouraged to join the order of the Sangha although he had a very strong desire to become a bhikkhu himself. Now one day early in the morning when the Buddha surveyed the world with his supernormal power he saw the poor Brahman in his vision and he knew that he was due for arahantship. So the Buddha went to the old man and learned from him that the bhikkhus of Jetavana Monastery did not want him to join the order. The Buddha then called all the bhikkhus to, to him and he asked them, is there any bhikkhu here who recollects any good turn done to him by this old man? And to this question the Venerable Sariputta replied, Venerable Sir, I do recollect an instance when this old man offered me a spoonful of rice. Then the Buddha said, if that be so, shouldn't you help your benefactor to get liberated from the ills of life? Then Venerable Sariputta agreed to make the old man a bhikkhu and he was duly admitted to the order of the Sangha. Then Venerable Sariputta guided the old bhikkhu and the old bhikkhu strictly followed his guidance. Within a few days, he became a arahant. Now, when the Buddha next came to see the bhikkhus, they reported to him how strictly the old bhikkhu followed the guidance of Venerable Sariputta. To them, the Buddha replied that a bhikkhu should be amenable to guidance like Radha, not resent when rebuked for any fault or failing. And then the Buddha spoke in verse, and the verse goes, One should find and associate with a learned and wise person who sees one's faults and speaks reprovingly just as a guide to some hidden treasure. It is better for one to associate with such a person, not worse.
So clearly the Buddha here is emphasizing that if someone points out your fault, someone gives you feedback, someone admonishes you, someone gives you instruction or guidance, you should view that as, as if someone's pointing out or guiding you to a hidden treasure. And I guess the failings, the faults, the misdeeds, the defilements, those are the hidden treasure because if one continues to hold on to defilements, continues to ignore uh, misdeeds and things of that nature, then clearly one can't progress, one can't develop. And uh, Radha Thera's story gives us a clear example of someone who's, who's old and probably uh, not very good means at the time, even under the guidance of a good teacher or being given the right feedback, one can develop and grow and understand the Dhamma. Another good sutta reference comes from the Dasuttara Sutta, which is a discourse on up to tens. And you find that in the Digha Nikaya, and it's discourse number 34. There's a statement in the chapter of twos, which says, which two things lead to the progress or distinction in Dhamma? And that's known as Dhamma Visesa Bhagya. And the answer that's given is being easy to admonish, Sovichasata, and having morally good friendships, Kalyana Mitata. And those are the two things that lead to progress or distinction. Now, what is really interesting about this is that link between easy to admonish and having morally good friendships. In this Anumana Sutta, what Venerable Mahamoglana will be promoting is that if you are easy to admonish, then you build trust. You foster trust with your spiritual companions. They see that you follow the good teaching, you follow guidance, instruction, and even try to resolve um, bad qualities and uh, defilements and that sort of thing. And so you can see the interchange that if you are easy to admonish, you foster trust. If you foster trust, you sustain morally good friendships, like good spiritual friendships and vice versa. So you can see the parallel in this and it's something to really contemplate as we go through even Anumana Sutta. After hearing the words of the Buddha in the Radha Theravatu and the story of Radha Thera, you can already see why the teaching in the Anumana Sutta is so important and can be very beneficial to us because the Anumana Sutta highlights in detail what obstructs us. And what, what obstructs us? Well, these are the, the qualities that obstructs us from understanding Dhamma. It obstructs us from uh, being able to be taught or instructed in the Dhamma by noble beings or learned people. It also obstructs us from making progress on the Noble Eightfold Path, on the path set by the Buddha. And also within the Sutta, it highlights where if you are unable to take feedback or instruction in Dhamma, if you are unable to be admonished for one's faults, then it makes it very difficult for people to trust you when you keep cultivating unwholesome qualities. And so that puts extra pressure on harmony with others, whether it's in Dhamma community, Dhamma circles, Dhamma groups, and even with Kalyanamitta. 
People tend to trust more when you're able to take advice, to take feedback, to see that advice, that feedback as a blessing towards one's practice, that someone is trying to help you to overcome defilements, to overcome what is hindering your path. Now, when one is unable to do so, then what happens is trust declines and then also harmony with others also declines. So what Anumana Sutta uh, provides is something that can be very, very beneficial to us. It clearly gives us a clear method for removing obstructions and a means for assessing or taking measure of oneself. And when one is able to take measure of oneself, then you can actually look at those areas for improvement, for uh, making progress. And of course, Venerable Mahmoglana, he emphasizes regular review because it's not a one-off thing. In order to progress on the path, whether you want to progress quickly, if you want to progress quickly, it's good to be able to see where one is falling down. And so if you regularly receive instruction or admonishment from spiritual friends and guides, then what happens is that can become very useful. And when you do that regular review oneself, then it becomes a self-knowledge, a self-correcting uh, mechanism, and that can quicken progress on the path. This is also supported in the Anangana Sutta, which is on blemishes. And this is a conversation between Venvo Sariputta and Venvo Mahamoglana looking at those that receive feedback on blemishes, those that can actually assess for oneself. And what Venerable Sariputta highlights in his discussion with Venerable Mahamoglana is that self-knowledge aids spiritual progress, that if one can actually see and make an assessment for oneself and can actually correct um, unwholesome qualities or defilements, then one can actually make progress on the path. The other thing that appears is within the Anguttara Nikaya, um, there's a teaching within Chapter 4, uh, Discourse 160, and that's around the persistence and continuation and endurance of the Dhamma, that if we cultivate in accordance with this particular teaching and other teachings of the Buddha, other teachings of the Arahants, then if we are cultivating in this way, if we are diligent, if we are open to feedback, to admonishment, then it is something that leads to the continuation of the Dhamma, the persistence and the endurance of the Dhamma. But if we don't, then the opposite is true. It would lead to the decline, the non-endurance of the teaching. Now, most of us have also been developing metta or cultivating metta. And if you know the Karaniya Metta uh, Sutta, then you will know that Suvacha or Suvacho, the easy to instruct, um, easy to admonish, easy to give feedback to, this is a quality that is a prerequisite for developing Metta. It actually goes on to be a prerequisite for Mudu, if you remember in the Sutta, which is the gentleness. That if we don't have this particular quality, then we fall short of being able to cultivate metta. So it becomes very, very important as something towards growing in our meditation practice, growing in our cultivation of good qualities.
When you look at a teaching of the Buddha or a teaching of one of the Arahants, it's always good to look for repetition throughout the Sutta Pitika to actually see that there are repetitions in the types of teaching, that it's not just a one-off, that it's not something that is obscure. And what you find with the Anumana Sutta is that there are multiple teachings within the Sutta Pitika that support this particular teaching and similar words, similar advice that is being given by both Buddha and other Arahats, um, very similar to what Venerable Mahamoggalana says in this particular sutta. There are quite a few suttas that intersect with the Anumana Sutta and literally support the Anumana Sutta. I won't go through all of them, but the ones that we already know are like I mentioned before, the Anangana Sutta, that's in Majjhima Discourse Number 5, and that's about blemishes. That's the one about Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamoggalana talking about how it's important to review one's blemishes and what's the distinction between an inferior person and a superior person, and that being that the superior person tries to understand where the blemishes are in order to overcome them, and therefore that makes you know the self-knowledge of that and the correction of it makes one advance on the spiritual path. Then you have the Vatupama Sutta, which we all know is the discourse on the simile of the cloth. That's Majjhima number seven. And that's really all about defilements. And there's a convergence between this particular sutta and the qualities that Venerable Mahamogalana lists out, um, which are very similar to some of the list of the 16 that Buddha gives in this Vatupama Sutta. Then you also have the Saleka Sutta, which is about self-effacement, and that's the one after Vatupama Sutta in the Majjhima And again, this is a list of qualities, and Buddha gives the way of actually overcoming um, those uh, particular qualities. So that's quite a useful one as well. But there are many, many others where Buddha and the Arahants are alluding to what it takes on this training path and the importance of being able to receive feedback, just like Venerable Radha, um, the poor Brahman, and being able to actually take guidance, take instruction, because it's always beneficial for the path and it's also beneficial to even to understand the teachings of the Buddha. So we've now laid the foundation for uh, the Anumana Sutta, uh, we've looked at the bird's eye view, we've looked at some of the importance of why this teaching is so beneficial to us, and also some of the repetition within the Sutta Pitika to give us some uh, confidence that this teaching is also quite important. And so now let's deep dive into what makes us Duvachal. What's useful to look at before we dive into the 16 qualities is to actually look at the English translations for Dubuchul. You often find um, difficult to instruct, difficult to give feedback, not amenable, uh, disobedient or impudent, non-compliant, difficult to admonish is a commonly used one, unyielding or defiant, uh, close to feedback, or unwilling to receive feedback, unwilling to listen or obey, and resistant. Venerable Mahamogalana begins by telling the monks, 
Suppose a bhikkhu invites other bhikkhus to admonish them, but they're difficult to admonish, having qualities that make them difficult to admonish. They're impatient and do not take the instruction or advice as an offering. So their spiritual companions are of the opinion they are not worth advising, not fit to be told, and deem they are not worth instructing and deem them as someone who doesn't produce or foster trust or confidence. Essentially what Venerable Mahamogalana is saying in this statement to the monks is, despite a person in the community coming up and, and asking for feedback or admonishment, they turn around when that uh, advice or feedback is given and they show signs of being impatient and signs of not actually welcoming the instructional feedback. And so Venerable Mahamogulana is pointing out that such a person isn't actually truly worth advising or giving feedback to, that the community would deem them not worthy of instruction and not someone that fosters trust and essentially not a good spiritual companion as a result of that. It's quite interesting because uh, Venerable Mahamogalana doesn't just say as uh, someone who rejects um, instruction or admonishment at all. It's more the fact that someone in a way pretends by actually asking for the feedback or asking for the admonishment. And quite often in Dhamma groups or communities, what happens is you attend to a teacher or attend to some kind of spiritual guide and maybe in friendship you ask uh, for such feedback but really you're asking maybe for the sake of asking it because that's what should be done but really inside you don't really want to know and if it wasn't for the sake of maybe reputation or for the sake of some kind of um, conditioning to ask for that feedback or admonishment you wouldn't really ask. Now, the thing that um, is interesting about this is in daily life, you find that you forget about the people that are the reason for why the people are actually giving you feedback or instruction, that it's actually not really for their benefit. Um, if you look at from a goodness perspective, most often people give you feedback or people offer advice or instruction from a place of wanting to help you from a place of wanting to help you progress. And in this spiritual life, whether you are monastic or a lay practitioner, it's this very uh, important message that is being conveyed that feedback is a positive thing. Constructive feedback is a very, very positive thing. And the person that's giving it to you is coming from a place of care and concern and for your benefit. And the other thing is it's not often easy for someone to give feedback, particularly from an admonishment perspective, that they see that you're making mistakes, they see you taking the wrong turns in the practice. And for someone to come and tell you, mm, that kind of speech is not helpful or that demonstration is actually taking off course, maybe you're continuously breaking sila or... Uh, that kind of quality is not something that one wants to breed, particularly on the spiritual path. That's the kind of thing that one needs to bear in mind. It's not easy for someone, whether it's a Kalyanamitta or whether it's a teacher 
or a spiritual guide or someone just in the Dhamma community to come up to you and actually give you that feedback, give you that instruction, uh, point to the words of the Buddha, for example. And so that's something when you think about Anumana Sutta, it's good to bear in mind that it's not easy in any kind of context to accept feedback, but it's a good idea to put yourself in the shoes of the person giving you that feedback as well. The other thing to say is probably that if one continuously demonstrates impatience, intolerance and poor behaviour when it comes to receiving instruction or advice, then what happens is over time uh, people will slowly turn away and will have this attitude as what Venerable Mahamogulana is saying that you'll be deemed not worth instructing, not speaking to, not... Uh, giving any kind of uh, constructive feedback or uh, specific advice and essentially over time uh, you'll be labeled uh, in many ways someone that can't be trusted can't can't have confidence with because it's a two-way stream actually in Dhamma that you know you help each other to grow on the path and so if someone continually behaves in this poor manner then that person starts to question whether you're worthy of this spiritual friendship and will be quite guarded over time. And that's something that um, you can see already in communities where there are some people that you really don't want to speak to. Or maybe there are qualities in ourselves that people would say, I can't trust this person, so I'm not going to even reveal my faults. And if you remember... The Buddha actually always advised that if you have faults, declare them in full. Whereas if there are things that you've done really well, those are the things that you are more quiet about, that those are the things that are blessings of the practice and they're not to be boasted about and things like that. But your faults and the areas where you struggle, these are the things that Buddha has always said, declare them in full. Venerable Mahamogalana then goes on to list the 16 qualities that make one difficult to instruct or to withdraw. And the 16 are one, has evil wishes and is dominated by evil wishes. Two, glorifies oneself and has contempt for others. Three, when angry is overcome by anger. Four, when angry is hostile because of anger. Five, when angry is stubborn because of anger. Six, when angry utters words bordering on anger. Seven, when reproved, resists the reprover. Eight, when reproved, denigrates the reprover. Nine, when reproved, counter-reproves the reprover. Ten, when reproved, prevaricates, leads aside and shows anger, hate and bitterness. 11. When reproved, fails to account for one's conduct. 12. Is derogatory and disparaging. 13. Is envious and stingy. 14. Is fraudulent and deceitful. 15. Is obstinate and arrogant. 16 adheres to one's own views 
holds on to them tenaciously and relinquishes them with difficulty. What's interesting about this knowledge pathway is that you can see the escalation uh, that begins with evil wishes and being dominated by evil wishes. It escalates through being quite conceited about oneself um, and quite arrogant. And then anger takes hold, like the four different kinds of anger that's demonstrated when receiving feedback. And then when you start to receive this feedback, all the different ways that you uh, reject um, essentially that feedback, that advice, that instruction. And then the qualities that start to take hold within oneself, the mental defilements, and uh, finally uh, being very, very tenaciously holding on to uh, one's own views. And this is not anywhere close to right view. It's quite evident in the words that are used that you're adhering to your own views, you're holding on to them very tightly, and you won't give them up. And so what's very important um, in looking at this uh, summary of the 16 is to actually see that it's a very negative practice. It's a practice that begins with wrong views and it will manifest the wrong pathway uh, if you continue to uh, demonstrate Duvucho, these 16 qualities. So it's not a good thing. When it comes to looking at this list, it's very important, very similar to Vatupama Sutta, to actually look at the list from a place of honesty that do I actually have any of these qualities? And it may not be that you consistently demonstrate these qualities. They may irregularly uh, arise, but it's good to actually look at all of them and even to say to yourself, I have all of these uh, because clearly the path for, for us is not opening up, is not developing quickly enough. And maybe also it's, it's still difficult to understand Dhamma. It's still a struggle to uh, practice and realize some of these teachings of the Buddha. And therefore, if you come from that place by looking at this list, then you have the opportunity to start really uh, acknowledging uh, where, where we go wrong. And from that place as well, you actually start to see, ah, if I actually improve this, this is where I can transform the actual practice of um, the path. So we'll go through in greater detail uh, the qualities that make it difficult for one to be instructed, and we'll go uh, one by one. Let's take a closer look or deep dive into the 16 qualities that make one difficult to instruct. The first one is has evil wishes and is dominated by evil wishes. In Pali, that's Pāpicho Hoti, Pāpikānang, Ichānang, Vasangato. The sutta that's most useful in understanding what are evil wishes and uh, the sphere of those evil wishes is really the Anangana Sutta, which appears in the Middle Length Discourses, and it's Discourse number five. And this uh, is a teaching given by Venerable Sariputta with some input by Venerable Mahamogalana to the bhikkhus. And it's really about blemishes and what constitutes 
uh, this fear of these evil unwholesome wishes so this perpetual now there are examples that are given by Venerable Sariputta and of course they are uh, focused on the actual monastics but that doesn't mean that we can't extrapolate and also understand how it applies to us as lay practitioners and so if we go through that list um, there's quite a few things that are uncovered there the first one is that you don't wish for others to know that you've committed an offense or done something uh, that is of bad action so that's the first thing so if you think about that it's usually this idea that oh I don't want any anyone to know that I've done something wrong so that's your wish you wish to hide uh, if you've done something wrong or practice something poorly the second one is you don't wish to be admonished or instructed or given constructive feedback in front of um, a group or your maybe your community it could be in front of your Dhamma group uh, in normal circumstances uh, we don't want to be told off in front of our loved ones uh, we don't want to be told off in public we don't want to be told off in a group at work in front of lots and lots of people um, things things like that that that's how that comes like you don't wish to be criticized in front of people a larger group but you'd rather be uh, criticized if if it happens um, in private so uh, that's the second one the third one is you wish for someone equal to you to be giving that instruction or that admonishment and not someone who is not your equal and this could apply in many different ways so it could be um, you're of a particular age and you don't want to be admonished or criticized by someone who's younger than you or if you're young you might also have this bias where you don't want someone who is very senior not of your a generation to be admonishing or criticizing you it could also apply to uh, you may not like a person and you don't see them as your equal so it's a perception that you have and it becomes quite quite a strong view and so you also in that context don't wish to receive feedback or instruction from that person likewise there may be other prejudices that come into play whether it's race gender um, and that sort of thing so that's where that third one comes in that you don't see that person as equal to you of equal standing and so you wish for someone who has equal standing someone that you rate highly or rate the same uh, to offer that feedback instead the fourth one is uh, you wish for a teacher um, to teach the Dhamma to the group by asking questions from you and not someone else so this is um, this could appear also in in our lives as lay pr practitioners that you also have this kind of notion that you're worthy to be the one that gets questioned that um, gets to be in the limelight and uh, in daily life this also happens where at work you want to be the one that your manager or your boss comes to and and uh, is the one that is used in a presentation or in a discussion uh, to carry on the, the, the instruction or the demonstration it could be at school the same thing you want to be the one that the teacher asks so that you get to shine and, and so it's quite strong even within even a family you know, the same thing uh, could appear that you know of your siblings you want to be the one that your parent mother or father comes and and asks the questions from at the dinner table now also within this 
um, the fifth one is when gathering you are put at the forefront of the group not someone else so again it's really wanting to be in the limelight wanting to be the one that is seen as favorable and I think that's something that we can all um, sometimes have these thoughts that we want to be the one that uh, is put forward and seen in that kind of limelight the other one that comes next is it's the wish for the best um, offerings and not someone else so when you go to someone's place uh, or you're within a group that you have these wishes that you are given the best so you're given it may be even the first serving you're given um, the tasty morsels and and so you have this attitude of me first and that's um, listed as something within the sphere of evil wishes the next one is you wish to be the one to speak to give the announcement um, in a Dhamma context the blessing so that's from a monastic point of view and not someone else so sometimes this is also around speech and uh, giving uh, blessings and <clears throat> well wishes and so you want to be the one that is uh, asked to do these things you're the one uh, that is in many ways raised um, higher than other people in the group to actually do these things so you have that that wish to be uh, of the good reputation that you're called upon to do that and then it goes on to say uh, and this applies to even um, our lay communities and lay um, Dhamma forums, Dhamma communities, Dhamma circles, where uh, the next you are, you wish to be the one to receive the invitation to teach, to share Dhamma and not someone else. So this could be, you know, sharing Dhamma with, within Sangha, with, uh, sharing Dhamma within groups. And so you want to be the one who's invited to come and talk. Now this sometimes applies even when we're in Dhamma groups just talking about certain things and you know someone asks someone else to come and uh, step forward and say something and sometimes you know you feel well how come I'm not asked why is that person always asked or when are they going to ask me and so this evil wish actually can be quite subtle or it can be um, more gross in the sense that if you're already sharing Dhamma, if you're already a teacher, if you have that label of teacher or someone who shares, then you might actually have that thought already and it's more um, specific to that. But even if you're not a teacher, um, you're a, a student, a practitioner, sometimes these thoughts also occur because you, you practice well or you consider that you practice well and so you consider that there is something that you have to offer and so this kind of wish comes in that why don't they ask me like why don't they ask me for not necessarily even to teach Dhamma but to share my insight uh, share my opinion and so that's how those evil wishes uh, come into play there then the next one is that you wish for people to honor you you wish for people to respect you you wish for people to revere you and then you wish for people to venerate you and not someone else now with these four it's actually something that is very insidious that sometimes you don't overtly know that you have these wishes it's only when it doesn't happen that you actually see um, you you resent it or you get annoyed or unhappy about it or even sad and so this kind of wish is something that if someone's not willing to give it to you then it's not something that you should really expect from people and 
in Dhamma, it's not something, particularly as lay practitioners, it's not something that is in the teachings that lay practitioners need to be venerated or honoured or respected or revered um, in that way. If it happens um, out of circumstance, if people actually willingly do it, then you know that's an honour. But it's not something that you beg for or demand. Uh, when you demand it even in your mind that people should honour me, people should respect me, people should revere me and people should venerate me maybe for all the things that I know or how I practice or how I teach then that's something that comes within the sphere of you know this papicho the the evil wishes now then it goes on the last one is very specific to monastics which is there's a wish for being offered the superior robe, the superior alms food, the superior resting place, the superior medicines. How that translates to lay practitioners is also very um, straightforward. It's like when you go to a place and you want the best seat um, or the best offerings, the best requisites of that place. And even on retreat, you want the best room or the best circumstances, uh, the best food. And when you go to a, a household that is hosting a Dhamma talk, you want to be offered, you know, those similar things, the best of it. And so when you have that wish, it's good to know that it's more complicated. There's a superiority, superiority complex that is being enforced in one's mind that I am someone who is worthy of these superior offerings. And it's not something that should be um, manifested and bred as as a thought because as Venerable Sariputta is saying in this particular sutta, the Anangana Sutta, it actually is within the sphere of evil wishes and at that point you see within all these evil wishes there is some sort of glorification of oneself, superiority, you think you're better than somebody else and that's where all these evil wishes are coming from. At that point you are forgetting that we are all in the actual same predicament, you know, having um, been the owner of our karma and coming into the world, into a human body, you see that we are subject to old age, sickness and death. And so at that level, there is no superiority. We are all the same. And so when you look at all the things that come under the sphere of evil and wholesome wishes, it's actually not something to be glorified at all it's actually quite bad and can only lead to actually a deviation in our practice that the practice will not grow so it's good to see that now the simile that is used by venerable sariputta in this anangana sutta is actually quite interesting i'll read from that sutta because the words are actually quite powerful the simile he gives is of a bronze dish and what he says is suppose a bronze dish were brought from a shop or a smithy clean and bright and the owners put the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being in it and covering it with another dish went back to the market then people seeing it said what is that you're carrying around about like a treasure then raising the lid and uncovering it they looked in and as soon as they saw they were inspired with such loathing repugnance and a disgust that even those who were hungry would not want to eat not to speak of those who were full. So what um, this simile is actually uh, showing us is that when you have these evil wishes 
and are dominated by evil wishes, it's actually a very repugnant thing. That if one were to look at it, such as this bronze dish that contains, you know, human carcass or animal carcass, it's something that would be viewed on with loathing and disgust. And so it's not something that should be cultivated. And it's quite easy to see why that makes one duvacho. It's also quite easy to see why your companions in the spiritual life, um, your Dhamma friends, Kalyanamitta, even your teachers and even your students, that if they were to see you with this, um, within any of these things, within the sphere of evil and wholesome wishes, that if it actually manifests itself from being the wishes to actually people being seen, that you want all these superior things, then people actually won't like you. They'll find that quite disagreeable and they'll question your practice. So that's also another way of looking at it. Then we come to the second quality that makes one difficult to instruct. And the second one is one glorifies oneself and has contempt for others. In Pali, this is Atukansako Hoti Paravambi. Now, this is, is essentially where you raise what yourself and you lower others. Um, that's a very simple way of looking at it. You raise yourself and you lower others. And so that's where you actually have quite a high opinion of yourself and also a low opinion of others. Sometimes what we do uh, in, in daily life is actually we're always lowering others. Like even if someone is doing something good, um, we have a natural way of if we are imbued with this particular quality, we like to lower others. Sometimes it's quite a subtle thing, we're not aware of it, but by lowering others, we inadvertently raise ourselves. So quite often when it comes to this, we can't see where we raise ourselves because most of us are relatively humble or we're not outspoken in the sense of boasting and, and overtly conceited, which is you know at the heart of this. Are being quite haughty. We're not overtly haughty, particularly as lay practitioners in Dhamma, as Sekas. But what we do do, which is, uh, which implies this quality, is always where we lower other people. So it could be, you know, in daily life, at work or at home, um, or it could be, you know, in the general community. But when it comes to Dhamma, when we're in Dhamma groups, when we're on retreats, where we're attending talks, where we're in a larger sort of Dhamma community, there is this propensity to lower other people. And it's a very poor quality. And this is the way to actually see whether we have this Atukansaka Paravambi, because that's how, that's how it can be seen. Because by lowering someone else, inside of that is actually, I'm better. I can do it better. I know it better. I can practice that better. I've done it better. And so that's one way of looking at it. Now there's two suttas where this kind of thing is kind of um, mentioned, but particularly like in Bhaya Bhairava Sutta, which is uh, Majjhima discourse number four, that's the fear and dread sutta. In that one, this Atukansaka Paravambi, this glorifying oneself and having contempt for others, it's seen as one of the qualities that will evoke fear and dread if you're residing in the, in the forest. So that sutta lists out uh, certain qualities that if you have them, you will have fear and dread even if you go into the forest to practice and therefore you're not advised to go if you have such qualities. There's also the 
uh, Gulisani Sutta, which is also in the Majjhima Nikaya, the Middle Eight Discourse, and it's uh, Discourse number 69. And in that, that talks about a forest dweller who comes back into the village and comes to stay with other bhikkhus who have not been in, in the forest, but demonstrates very poor qualities. And haughtiness and vanity is one of those qualities, which is very close to this Atukansaka Paravambi, where you have a lot of conceit. And so when you demonstrate this, what is said by the bhikkhus who haven't been dwelling in the forest is they think, well, surely this uh, venerable who's been dwelling alone in the forest, he must always be like this and he in the forest. And then when he comes, he's also like this when he's with the Sangha. And so they don't actually like it. They actually think, uh, what kind of practice is this person uh, actually practicing, even though they're a forest dweller, which is always seen in very uh, positive light because if you can go into the forest then you're actually focusing on practice now you can already see just by um, these two suttas that this Atukansaka Paravambi is not a quality that is seen as very good because there's a self-glorification in there there's a, a vanity in it and and it's not something that would help you on the path because if you think about taking instruction from someone or even someone giving feedback, immediately you know a person that has this quality would belittle you and would actually, maybe they might hear you, but it wouldn't go in because they have such a high opinion of themselves that um, it would just almost like bounce off them. And so it makes one very difficult to instruct and very difficult to give feedback to. And they would be deviating from the path from that point because uh, you can't be corrected, you can't be helped. And, and therefore that's quite a poor quality. Now we come to the next four uh, qualities that make one difficult to instruct and they're all associated with anger. So this quarter. Uh, now, the first one is when angry is overcome by anger. The second is when angry is hostile because of anger. And the fifth one is when angry is stubborn because of anger. And the sixth is when angry utters words bordering on anger. There's a clear escalation as it goes on that not just being angry, you start to get hostile, then you get quite stubborn holding on to that anger. And then um, you start to break sealer um, in terms of words that are bordering on anger and probably also starting to be quite rude around it like this quality of pagabba which is mean which means you're discourteous or rude um, no longer polite um, in terms of your actions or speech maybe now what's interesting around this is where this is coming from so this is where the Agathavato Sutta, which is in the Ankutunikaya chapter 9. It's a discourse on resentment and the, the, the causes of resentment or the reasons for resentment, and it's discourse 29. And in this uh, brief teaching, what the Buddha says is that uh, one uh, has this anger or resentment because someone has hurt you in the past, right? And it could be that you expect this person to hurt you now, or you expect this person who's hurt you, hurt you in the past to hurt you in the future. So that's the first uh, triad. The second triad is that 
someone has hurt a loved one or someone you care about in the past or they're hurting someone you care about right now or you expect them to hurt them in the future someone that you care about so that's the second triad the third triad is that person is helping your enemy or they've helped them in the past and that they are helping them now or you expect them to help your enemy in the future so that's the third triad so when it comes from that place that's when you start to get angry now in the context of um, this duvacho quality when it comes to instruction or advice or constructive feedback where one usually thinks particularly if it's about oneself is you get angry because you think someone is hurting you in giving this feedback or you think that somebody has hurt you in the past by giving feedback and so you already are coming from a place of oh they've hurt me before so why should I listen to them now and that can present many many problems but you can see how this could underpin uh, these four different examples of anger so the first one where you just become over, overcome with anger or resentment is that the minute someone says something to you it triggers this response and you just you know you, you find it quite unacceptable and it's quite a destructive thing you know to get angry the second one where it's about hostility uh, we're familiar with this term because this appears in Vatupama Sutta as well and you see this escalation in Vatupama Sutta from anger it becomes escalation of of this anger to hostility where you're beginning to hold a grudge that there's some kind of labeling that has happened within you to say I don't like this person this person is xyz and and so there's hostility there so it may be that you have this persistent grudge with the person who is willing to give you advice willing to give you some constructive feedback because they see you veering off the path or they see where your path is is getting unhinged and they don't want you to fall down and so this person whether it's a teacher or a kalyanamitta spiritual friend comes and says to you you know my friend i have some feedback for you or i need to instruct you um, where you might be going wrong please accept this feedback and but you're hostile because you're bearing a grudge and so at this point um, when hostility takes hold the most obvious thing is that one can't forgive that because one can't forgive you're not tolerant to this person you're not willing to listen to them and therefore you're not willing to see one's own, own faults and that this person may be coming to you from a good place a place of benefit for you not necessarily for them and and then the fifth one is you become quite stubborn because of the the anger that this abhisanki always has this cleaving kind of nature to it that you're holding on very stubbornly very tenaciously to um, to the anger and uh, at this point you know people would often think oh this person doesn't want to change they're so stubborn around it there's a rigidity a mental rigidity around being angry and they're not willing to actually open up to the possibility that this feedback could be useful or even that this teaching is important now even if we're struggling to understand dhamma sometimes it's because of this that you raise something else and so when someone brings dhamma to you to say these are the words of the buddha 
um, this could be very helpful to you to understand this. But because you hold on to something else, um, you're very unwilling and you might get very angry with the person. Sometimes that actually happens um, in in these modern times because science, for example, is, is upheld as something very precious now to the detriment of all the um, spiritual paths. So you often see, you know, I believe in science and science is the king. And whether or not that's true, that's not the point. But the fact that you're tenaciously holding on to something else. And so you would get angry with someone who comes to you with Buddha's words, who comes to you with even, you know, Venerable Sariputta or Venerable Mahamogalana's words. You know, those that have already awakened who have actually um, no reason to hurt you. And so when it comes to that, it's quite interesting to see that you know, this stubbornness, this mental rigidity is, is what can prevent you from understanding Dhamma, from seeing the fragrance of the Buddha's teachings because you raise something else and you're adamantly, rigidly holding on to that. Now, the final one in this sort of angry tranche of qualities is you utter words bordering on anger. Now this one is also quite interesting because your words are starting to become infused. So you're not quite maybe breaking full zila by uttering harsh words. So maybe uh, this implies that there's no farasavacha um, being, being actually applied, but you're getting close to it. And so what that also shows is that maybe this quality of rudeness um, and uh, impoliteness is starting to take hold. So this could be even physical actions, waving of hands, um, shaking. It could also be from a verbal perspective. You know, it may not be harsh, but there are. it's going in that direction of rudeness. And so that's not a very good quality as well, particularly if someone's coming to you from a good place which is often what we can't see, that a person like a Kalyanamitta or a Dhamma teacher or even a fellow student or um, someone that is learning from you comes to you and wants to say, you know, this is something that I've seen that is actually not very good. It doesn't demonstrate a good thing and it's not for the benefit of others and it's probably hindering your path. Um, maybe you should look at it. And so when someone comes with that kind of uh, feedback and you start to actually abuse a person even in a subtle form it's actually not a good thing at all and um, that person will not feel like coming to you and not just because they don't feel like it but they might get scared of actually coming to to tell you something because you're bordering on demonstrating full-on anger and uh you know, that sort of uh, demonstration. And so someone gets very turned off and maybe even scared to come and approach you. Now, uh, it could even be sounds where you may not utter words of anger, but you might make sounds of disgust or sounds that border on anger. And that is also something to pay attention to. So this is also, you can see, this is also where there is an overlap with the Vatubhuma Sutta. And what's said about anger is that if one concentrates and really gets the root of these four particular things within the Anumana Sutta, the meditation can really open up. 
the practice can really open up because we get very obstructed from understanding Buddha's words because of anger. We get very obstructed from moving forward and making good progress on the Noble Eightfold Path because of this, um, these particular qualities within anger. Because anger is actually striking at the heart of one's practice. It's actually um, increasing the uh, hatred root, you know, the uh, dosa mula, so the root of hatred. And it's a huge obstacle um, on the Noble Eightfold Path. If we keep uh, endorsing or even breeding this kind of behavior, then it becomes a really th a big thing that we start to veer off the path because it's not something that is very conducive at all and can actually hijack. And often you see anger and things associated with anger. As it, as it escalates, it becomes a form of self-sabotage. So something to really take to heart that if one can even meditate just on these four qualities... Um, that make one duvacha from an angry place, then it can really be quite um, eye-opening and illuminating when it comes to seeing more of these things. Because anger, as we know, once it escalates, it escalates to far worse. And as we've seen even in Vatubhama Sutta, anger then uh, leads on to uh, things like uh, derogation, where you want to belittle someone. It leads on to even... Um, you know, jealous thoughts about someone and on and on and on like that. So uh, there are things that, you know, as part of a knowledge pathway, you can see where if you can nip this one in the bud, then it doesn't actually translate into all these other things. The next five qualities um, that are within these 16 qualities that make one difficult to instruct all relate to being reproved. So you're being admonished or given some kind of constructive feedback. And so the first one is when reproved, resist the reprover. The second one is when reproved, denigrates the reprover. The ninth one is when reproved, counter reproves the reprover. The, uh, the next one is when reproved, prevaricates, leads aside and shows anger, hate and bitterness. And then the final one is when reproves, fails to account for one's conduct. Essentially, these are the examples, these are the ways that when you're given feedback, you uh, resist um, and don't accept uh, the feedback, don't e accept the instruction that's given and the admonishment that's given. And it's actually very evident that uh, it's not welcomed and uh, you don't want to have a bar of it. So with the first one where you resist the reprover, it's very clear that you know, you've been given feedback and it may be in front of a group or it may be one-to-one -one and you're given that feedback and you make, um, you deny it basically. You could essentially just say, you know, you just refuse to admit any wrongdoing that no, no, I didn't do that. No, I don't have that. It's not in me. Now, you see this happening um, in the workplace, you see it at home, you see it uh, in all different kinds of places. But when it comes to Dhamma, it's a very insidious one as well, because quite often, because we have this conditioning around not really being very open to feedback in daily life, particularly depending on what we view of uh, the person giving the feedback, 
it's quite obvious um, in Dhamma that we still haven't seen the wisdom of actually uh, saying thank you for feedback, thank you for admonishment. Uh, something that I keep repeating is that Buddha always says, you know, a bit like this Radhathera um, verse uh, from Dhammapada that we saw at the at the beginning of of this talk was, if someone is willing to take guidance, take feedback, take admonishment, that's seen in a very good light when it comes to Dhamma. Because when someone comes to you and says, friend, you know, this is where you're going wrong. This is what needs to be corrected. It's for your benefit. If you turn around and, and say, no, I don't agree, or no, I don't want to listen to you, or you just shut down, then really you're actually um, not seeing the hidden treasure because that's where the, the thing can actually help you, that, that kind of feedback, that kind of thing, and you're not seeing it as a hidden treasure. And so the minute you resist and and you might not even show that you're resisting but on your face it, it's it's calm but inside it's like nope doors closed it's nope nope and so that kind of thing is something that we need to overcome for all these instances of being given admonishment or feedback because it's for our benefit and the dhamma path only opens when someone shows you something that maybe you cannot see that uh, you cannot see this is very beneficial to you. This is something that can transform your path. This is something that please just look at. So I think with feedback, what we fail to see is we don't have to just automatically say, I agree. But this quality is more of saying, I'm open to feedback and I'm going to go away and look at it. I'm going to go away and investigate it. So you say to the person, I appreciate I'm grateful for you coming to bring this to my attention and I'm going to go away and look at it and see whether it's true. So it may not be then and there that you have to accept it, but it's something that you, you wish to look at. Now, when you're living with community, that's a different scenario because that is you're actually living with community. So within the monastic Sangha, for example, there may be gatherings uh, like such as Patimok and things where you have to actually declare and you have to actually um, accept or or um, respond immediately but in our lives as lay practitioners we actually have the opportunity to be graceful about these things and I think that's what what this is about that the quality of making one more easy to instruct is one of grace and forgiveness and openness and so what makes you difficult to instruct is harshness uh, being closed and unwilling to look at oneself so as it escalates it then goes to you denigrate the reprover so in this case you start to actually say well what a, what a, well you're you're not worthy to actually give me this kind of feedback or constructive criticism and you start to uh, you know pick holes in the person's character or you know talk back to them you know becomes one of challenge and I think that also shows uh, ingratitude or even a lack of grace when it comes to these things. Then after that, um, it goes to counter-approving the reprover. So it's then really picking holes. So it could be this person comes and talks about your speech, that you know there's certain areas of your speech that could be improved, or you know that you're not aware that it's actually something that is increasing maybe delusion in the path. 
And so someone comes in and gives you that kind of, of feedback about maybe uh, having some kind of frivolous speech. But you take it in a way uh, by counter-approving them, by saying, but I've, I've heard you speak like that too. And how dare you come and, you know, tell me this when, when you, you're really bad. In fact, I think you're worse. And if it gets even more, um, almost like it, it's in a self-destructive mode, sometimes people, when they're reproved like that, they can even make something up about their, their reprover, that the person giving you feedback, you just don't want to hear this, that even though you don't know for sure, you might make something up about the person just to throw them off because you're just so unwilling to accept any form of criticism, any form of admonishment and any form of instruction. And so you might just deflect by uh, turning it around on the person and uh, picking you know, holes and even making it up. Then the next one is where you prevaricate, lead aside and show anger and hate and bitterness. And this is really um, getting quite bad because at this point you're actually demonstrating rudeness, anger, even hatred, even the resentment, the bitter resentment that you might be holding a grudge behind this person who could be your teacher or could be your um, guide, someone that's been uh, helping you so far. But at this point, you start to really hate them. And that's what, what comes out when someone is continuing to try to help you, that you actually at first try to prevaricate, you know, lead the talk aside. So talk about something totally different so instead of talking about the topic of what you're being criticized about or being admonished about you actually talk about something totally left field something very mundane or just you know to, to take them off course and if that doesn't work then then you show the anger and hate and the bitterness you actually become very evasive and and very hateful towards the person and maybe even very righteously indignant. And the thing about this particular um, escalation to prevarication and distraction and then actually demonstrating anger and hate is that, you know, we, we've often seen this. We've seen it at work. We've seen it on the television. We've seen this kind of behavior take hold. So it's very good to look at oneself to see, do I actually do this? You know, because within this these five different ways of um, rebuffing a reprover, you know, it goes from very subtle to very gross. And there are different situations, maybe in family life, maybe at work, maybe in different scenarios where these sort of things take hold. And it's good to actually recall uh, when it has actually happened in the past, because then you can actually see how this can be applied in a Dhamma context that uh, you know, this kind of poor behavior can be very obstructive and actually very nasty towards another person who is, if you think about it, trying to help you. Now, when that um, then escalates, it could be this failing to account for one's conduct. It could simply be that when someone comes and reproves you, you just stay silent, that you just become you know, a wall but it could also be quite evident that to, to the person that is speaking to you or the people that are speaking to you at that point that nothing is going in, that you're not willing to, to hear them and that you're not going to heed any advice. 
and that you're not really even willing to acknowledge that there is a, a, a fault or something worth looking at. And so at this point, it may even be that you appear to, to, to say to these people, I'm totally fine. You know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing here and there's nothing to be concerned about. And so this is where this falls under that you just are like a brick wall to a certain extent that it can be perceived that way, that it's like talking to a brick wall. Now, the sutta that I find very helpful when it comes to these five particular qualities is a sutta called the Asaka Lunka Sutta, which is in Anguttara Nikaya chapter 8, and it's discourse number 14. And it's about wild cults, so wild horses, wild young horses. And in this sutta, it actually gives eight different scenarios for when one is difficult to reprove. And it likens, it uses the simile of wild cults and the different ways that a cult can actually um, evade uh, the trainer. And so when a trainer says, go forward, uh, you know, it's response. And these are the different kinds of responses. And so rather than going through that full sutta, it's actually very useful to offline go and have a look at that sutta because in a similar way, it has um, these five in there and, and three more. So have a look at the Asaka Lunka Sutta, which is about these wild cults. Now we come to the final few qualities that make one difficult to instruct. And uh, if you look at them, particularly 12, 13, 14, and 15, these particular qualities you would be familiar with if you've studied the Vatupama Sutta or the Saleka Sutta, or even if you're cultivating metta within the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And this is because these qualities are very important to be cleaned in order to both concentrate the mind, but also from a place of purity, be able to cultivate metta or loving kindness. So we'll start with 12, which is, is derogatory and disparaging. In Pali, that's Makki and Palasi, also known as Makka Palasa. Now, derogation is also known as belittling, demeaning. That's where we have contempt for another person. And so we want to belittle their good qualities to actually lessen them. And what usually happens here is that we have some kind of anger towards them. That's where this is coming from, that we're not happy with them. Maybe they've hurt us in the past or we are actually... Um, annoyed, irritated about something that's happened. And so we bear some sort of resentment towards them. And that's where this belittling quality comes from. And it's not a very good quality because, you know, if we have this attitude towards someone, then clearly when it comes to uh, taking instruction or uh, receiving feedback or uh, being admonished, then we would, in our minds, belittle them while they are doing it. And so nothing goes in. It's almost like it bounces off us. We are immediately thinking these bad things about someone. When it comes to disparaging, that's where we actually see um, a lot of faults in someone. We might have a strong dislike or certain preferences around particular things. And so we're already measuring a lot of things in our mind and dividing. And to a certain extent, when disparaging takes hold, bullying can, can happen. And so 
when when this quality is present you can see that it would be very difficult for someone to give feedback particularly if they're not within your preferences or you have a bias towards someone i think disparaging always uh, demonstrates our biases and our preferences and maybe our prejudices and so when someone comes to you you have a very negative thought towards the person and therefore again another block towards receiving feedback or admonishment and uh, you would have a strong dislike and if you remember with disparaging uh, there's also this case of wanting to shut people out and so that's the beginnings of shutting people out shutting it down and being very closed off if they don't meet your expectations and your preferences so that becomes quite a hindrance towards receiving instruction uh, from you know people that don't meet your expectation that don't fit within uh, what you actually like or dislike then the next one is 13 which is is envious and stingy so this is isuki and machari which are also known as issa and macharia now envy is also known as jealousy and you know when we're jealous we often um, very much uh, are not happy for another person we have some kind of uh, deep unhappiness within our minds and when you know other people gain or they're successful in something then envy um, we're not happy for them and basically don't think that they deserve it and in most cases you know we think oh i i deserve that that should be mine and so envy has this way of saying he or she has and i haven't um he or she can and i can't and so when you have this kind of mind it's a mind that comes from a lack and it's not a very wholesome mind state and when this pervades the mind when it comes to instruction when it comes to admonishment you know it could be the case that you are jealous or envious of the person who is actually giving you feedback and so it's a case of you're not willing to accept because you think oh i deserve your position more than uh, what you have um, who are you to tell me this when what is yours should be mine and you know that sort of thing and so it becomes quite difficult or even if it's not about the person who's giving you that feedback but if you have a mind that is weighed down by jealousy and envy then it's very difficult to give someone feedback from that point of view because you're always thinking that you're more deserving than what you actually are the other thing to remember about envy is that when envy is present when this jealousy is present what you fail to see is the actual common dukkha that we're all experiencing that nothing is really what it seems and it misapprehends karma and so from that place it's very important to understand that if we don't actually see that uh, there is this common dukkha that because we are born we are subject to old age sickness and death we forget that you know there is a place for all of us, all of us to have compassion for each other that even in giving feedback and um, being admonished that we're all coming from a place of wanting to progress on the path to understand the buddha's teaching because the buddha's teaching is essentially about the first noble truth is you know to understand that there is suffering and you know the path is actually to get us out of this um whole mass of suffering and it's not often 
things that we can see. And so you need someone to either guide you or instruct you. And if it's not the Buddha, then who who else will it be? Um, if it's somebody else, then it has to be somebody that um, you're willing to receive this instruction from, that you're willing to actually hear from. But if you have all these um, mental stains, it, it makes it very, very difficult to to actually see certain things, to understand certain things. Now, when it comes to stinginess, this is actually quite a, a difficult one because as we know, there are five kinds of stinginess. There is stinginess in gain. There is stinginess in dwellings. There is stinginess in groups or family, clans. And then there is uh, stinginess when it comes to reputation or virtue. And the final one is stinginess in, in terms of Dhamma, in terms of knowledge and the truth. Now, when it comes to any kind of stinginess, whether it's uh, any one of these qualities or, or subsets of, of stinginess, what's important to realize is that stinginess is where you're not willing to share, where you become quite selfish, which is another uh, word for stinginess is that you become quite selfish and self-centered and you're only thinking about thinking about you and yours so whatever falls into what you consider uh, part of you that is where you your boundary lies and so when you're stingy particularly in community and particularly with um, in dhamma what you find is that you're actually very limited uh, so that's the first thing the second thing is that if you demonstrate stinginess outwardly towards others, people begin to see that quality and don't find it very agreeable at all. In fact, most of um, these qualities, it's, if it is observed by someone, um, then the, the people actually find you quite disagreeable and actually question one's practice that this is not someone who is open, who is willing to share, who is willing to um, essentially be instructed and receive feedback. Now, with stinginess, it goes on because when people see how selfish and stingy you are, it doesn't lend itself to trust and confidence and even intimacy. That when you see these kinds of behaviors, you actually shy away from becoming closer to that person or even wanting to help the person. So even in the first instance, one might not want to come up to you and help you. And that could be physically help you or to the extent of this um, instruction or admonishment, it's even willing to come and tell you to help you in your path. One might think if this person cannot open up and is stingy around these little things, then how are they going to receive feedback or instruction about other things? And so you can see that it becomes very obstructive and, and would lead to downfall really. Then number 14 is, is fraudulent and deceitful, which is Sato and Mayavi, which we also know as Sateya and Maya. And when it comes to fraudulence, this is something that is really quite bad when it comes to community or Dhamma groups, when someone um, is dishonest and uh, uses trickery to obtain something, to gain something, then this is a very bad thing uh, when it comes to uh, you know, being an obstruction towards uh, receiving feedback or help on the path, someone who is dishonest or treacherous, people won't be willing to help you. People will actually say, this person has such bad qualities that um, I, I just don't think I can help. That person has such bad ways that even if I tried, I don't think that they would be willing to change. 
And a person might think, if I go up to this person and try and give them some constructive feedback, or if I want to um, help them in Dhamma, but I go up to them, what's to say they won't just turn around and be dishonest, like just lie to me and reject what I have to say uh, that is trying to help them? And that's where fraudulence becomes quite difficult, because if someone is fraudulent and someone observes that in, in a person, quite often they, they realize if I go and help them, they'll just be dishonest. They'll lie about it. And and therefore, what's the point? Now, when it comes to deceit, it's a very similar thing because, you know, if someone is deceptive, then there is a level of pretentiousness uh, where you are almost um, acting out of hypo- hypocrisy. And so when there is this obvious hypocrisy being manifested and it comes from a mental stain, then a person often becomes quite unwilling to help because, or finds it very difficult to come and help you because at that level, you're always acting. You're always trying to show something that you're not. And uh, a teacher or a spiritual friend can become quite frustrated, quite disappointed in many ways because the level of deception is so high and every time you know when you try and correct something or give some feedback and the person is really caught up in their own act really caught up in the show of it the make-believe of this is who I am and this is what I'm showing out to the world but it's not really true it's so strong that when you're given feedback or when someone is trying their best to instruct you and you're still keeping up this level of pretentiousness then you know that there's a wall there that uh, I can't help this person at some point. And so from an internal um, viewpoint, when you meditate on these qualities, you really need to be honest with oneself, all of these qualities, to say, do I have this? Is this something that makes it difficult for someone to come up to me, that makes it very difficult for someone to teach me, who makes it very difficult for someone to give me any kind of feedback that would help me? to understand Dhamma, to practice Dhamma, to realize the teachings of the Buddha, to actually make progress on the path. And so it becomes very much an honesty practice at that point. So when it comes to things such as fraudulence and deceit or hypocrisy, what you really need to look at is how straight am I? Like how, how straight am I when it comes to my moral sila, my moral virtue? And how straight am I when it comes to being authentic? Because quite often we misapprehend that we, we need to be nice, that we need to be good. But the reality is that we all have mental stains and it does no good to pretend to be good, to pretend to be nice. It's much better to be authentic because when it comes to spiritual friendship, when it comes to even a teacher-student relationship, when it comes to embracing Buddha's teaching and the teaching of the Arahants, what is actually most useful is to be very authentic because then it's almost like saying, I'm open to anyone to come and help, to come and point out certain faults because clearly from understanding Anumana and the suttas that intersect with Anumana, what is most useful is being able to take instruction, being able to be open to see where we are going wrong because if that isn't pointed out and we can't see it ourselves then how are we going to actually progress on this path how are we actually going to see what we can't see 
Now 15 is being obstinate and arrogant. So this is Tado and Atimani. Now obstinacy is very much like mental rigidity or stubbornness and um, this arrogance is also thinking that we're better than somebody else. So we'll start with obstinacy. I mean this kind of stubbornness is actually quite obstructive because you know immediately this is where one says I reject anything that anyone comes and tries to tell me. I'm not willing to listen or if I listen I'm actually thinking of my counter arguments or my own views and opinions. And where that actually leads to is really not willing to budge. So it comes a point where there's inflexibility and uh, holding on to uh, whatever view that you're standing on. And it's the start of it where you actually don't want to budge. And so someone, when they come to uh, help you, where they come to give you feedback, uh, try to teach you, if they see that uh, you are obstinate, that you're stubborn and you're not willing to budge from your position, then over time it becomes very difficult for that person to be willing uh, to come and help you and very unwilling to even uh, to, uh, come and, and speak because what usually happens with you know this particular mental stain is that it converts into debating and arguing and you know going back and forth and so it becomes very destructive rather than helpful. When it comes to arrogance um, you know you can see this already escalates from uh, where we you know raise ourselves this becomes even worse because at this point of arrogance Atimani you're thinking you're better than somebody else and so you think your views are better than another person's you think you know more than another person and so you're very puffed up and uh, think you, you're actually much better than you really are. Now, when it comes to arrogance, there's a place where you, you actually always lower somebody else. And within this, you often forget that we're actually where we are all the same. That's what you forget. You forget that in this predicament of being born of our karma, we're born into these bodies which are subject to old age, sickness and death. And within that, that's where we're all the same. We are all uh, aging. You know, we're all prone to sickness and we all ultimately will pass away. And that's what you forget. You, you actually get imbued with all the samsaric conditions, thinking that these are better. And even the knowledge when it comes to even on the Dhamma path, where you start to renunciate certain things, uh, that come from more gross sensual desire. You're left with Dhamma, but with Dhamma you still make a meal out of it because you become arrogant and conceited around Dhamma. And so it's very important as this escalates through these qualities of being difficult to instruct, this is one of the most difficult ones to actually see because in Dhamma it's very easy to become quite attached um, to Buddha's words. It's very easy to become attached to the practice and one's own insight. But one forgets even that insight in meditation. Once you come out of meditation, that insight is already gone. It's dead. So all we are doing is repeating um, memories of insight. And that's something that's quite difficult to see actually, because when we actually even speak from the memory of that insight, it still smells quite fragrant and it sounds quite good. 
but that's where the arrogance still takes hold. And the thing to say about arrogance is it's one of the you know, final things that one lets go of on the path to awakening. It's not something that's quite easy. But I think when it comes to even being difficult to instruct, if someone is willing to come and show you where you have this particular quality, it's a place where you say thank you. Thank you for showing me how this has manifested. Because if it grows in, in size and stature, then it's actually something that would truly hinder the path. And it's something that we really need to overcome. The final one that we look at is adhering to one's own views, holding on to them tenaciously and relinqu relinquishing them with difficulty. This one is really um, at the root of the escalation of everything that you don't realize that you're actually holding on to wrong views. That if you get to the point where you're harnessing anger, you are uh, rejecting admonishment, you are breeding lots of these mental stains, then the culmination of all of that is really about wrong views, that you can't actually see that you're actually practicing the wrong path and you're adamantly holding on to these wrong views. And that, that's the really sad thing about this, that that is why we actually need Kalyanamitta, we need uh, good spiritual friends, teachers and guides, those that are actually practicing the Noble Eightfold Path, to come and advise us, to actually um, remind us, to offer constructive feedback, to actually admonish. Because there are times where we can be very, very stubborn, very, very arrogant, and sometimes it is actually through kindness, not through... Um, uh, jealousy or any of these other things that someone can come and actually tell you my friend uh, this is where you're going wrong and the view one is actually the hardest to see because you know this comes from ignorance and also delusion that at the point of holding wrong views we are imbued with delusion but the root of it comes from ignorance and what is very evident, like if you look at the Avijja Sutta, the one that is in the chapter 10 of the Anguttara Nikaya, that particular one where it shows you the knowledge pathway that goes to uh, knowledge and liberation versus the one that goes to ignorance. So you have two different Yanapathas, two different knowledge pathways. You actually see that mental stains, defilements, uh, misconduct, and hindrances these are the things that lead to more ignorance and so when you're adhering to a view that is clearly coming from a place of mental stains and uh, bad conduct misconduct then what you're doing is you're increasing ignorance you're not actually leading to the path of awakening the path that leads you to knowledge and liberation and so that's very important to to acknowledge now when it comes to someone that sees that you are holding on to these wrong views and holding on to them and not wanting to let them go basically a person who wants to give you feedback who wants to teach you will think to themselves this person will not change this person um, is so adamant about their construction they will not change and when you look at vinyana hara which is the a path that looks at the nutriment of consciousness what you see is where this really takes hold is idan satcha binivesa which is um, my view is the truth 
and and that's where you hold on to it and it comes from a place of um you know you just won't let it go that that whatever you have constructed out of consciousness, that, that you think it's fixed, that you will tenaciously hold on to it. And so it becomes, this is the huge obstruction to the Noble Eightfold Path because in reality what you're practicing is coming out of wrong view and therefore you're practicing the wrong path. And by this, this is really where one cannot understand Dhamma you are actually practicing the wrong path. It's so obvious you cannot understand Dhamma. Um, if you continue down that path, then no matter what you practice, it's actually something that won't lead you to this jnana vimukti, this knowledge and liberation, because you're actually not on that path. And then on top of that, why you struggle is there may be aspects where you understand certain parts of Dhamma, but then you veer off and you go off course. And so if you don't have someone that points this out to you, someone who actually says, my friend, this is where you're going wrong, or where you have a friend who says to you, my friend, um, this kind of conduct is not right. It's coming from this particular mental stain. This is not good to breed this kind of behavior. If you don't have someone like that to pull you back, to rein you in, or to even correct you, then this is where you understand that um, if you are not easy to instruct, if you are difficult to instruct, and you are not having good friendships, then the path doesn't progress. And this is that you really see that uh, link between good friendship and uh, being easy to instruct. At the end of looking at all of these 16 qualities, one should actually start to feel that you would want to start asking people you trust, uh, your Kalyanamitas, your teachers, for feedback. That in actual fact, it is very skillful to say to someone, a spiritual companion, a friend, a teacher, to say, please, you know, if there's some kind of constructive feedback that you can give me about the way I practice, about some of these qualities, please give me that feedback. And when you actually feel that compulsion, that is a very wholesome quality. And I think at the end of looking at these 16 qualities of being difficult to instruct, if you land somewhere close to that place, that is a very useful thing. The final thing I would probably want to say on um, these 16 qualities is just to have a quick look at the Saleka Sutta because it's actually very simple when it comes to self-effacement. For example, uh, it says, one given to anger has non-anger by which to avoid it. And likewise, it says, uh, one given to derogation has non-derogation by which to avoid it. One given to disparaging has non-disparaging by which to avoid it. One given to envy has non-envy by which to avoid it. And one given to avarice, which is stinginess, has non-stinginess by which to avoid it. One given to fraud has non-fraud by which to avoid it. One given to deceit has non-deceit by which to avoid it. One given to obstinacy has non-obstinacy by which to avoid it. One given to arrogance has non-arrogance by which to avoid it. And it also says one given to being difficult to admonish it has being easy to admonish by which to avoid it. So. If you're difficult to instruct, difficult to give feedback to, then you know the way to avoid it is being easy to instruct, 
easy to give feedback to. And then one of the other ones um, also in here is one given to adhere to his own views, who holds on to them tenaciously and relinquishes them with difficulty, has non-adherence to his own views, non-holding on to them tenaciously and relinquishing them easily by which to avoid it. This final one is very interesting. It's a difficult one because are we willing to relinquish our views about the world, about science, about knowledge? Are we willing to relinquish them to Buddha? You know, are we willing to actually um, give them up in order to walk the Buddha's path? Willing to listen to the Buddha's words? Willing to have them repeated to us continuously? Willing to investigate them and contemplate them? Willing to practice the knowledge pathways in order to see where it leads us? Because the Buddha's miracle of instruction is, if you do this, you will get this result. But if you do this, you will get this alternate result. And this is what it means that if we are willing to receive Buddha's instruction and to hear Buddha's view about the way things are, then we are willing to actually see whether it is true. And that is the beauty of, of being, being easy to admonish, easy to instruct. Quite often when we start to go to look at the other knowledge pathway, which is looking at the qualities that make one easy to instruct, one misapprehends where it says non this, non that. The Buddha's path is actually about samudaya atangama, which is how does something arise? How do we actually, um, and how do we make it not arise? And it's not a negative thing. So when you see on the easy to instruct knowledge pathway, it's not about something that is negative, negative. It's actually something that goes with the way that the Buddha teaches. He wants you to see the samudaya. If you do this, it causes the arising of something and therefore all these qualities will make you want to create another birth. Whereas if you carry on to the other pathway, which is by not doing those things, you're actually seeing the athangama. You're actually seeing the non-arising of something. And that is essentially part of the Four Noble Truths, that this is the way the Buddha teaches. And so when we go look at the qualities that make one easy to instruct, it's good to bear that in mind, that it is not something that just is how um, it appears. There's something deeper to how the Buddha actually gives instruction. Now we'll look at what makes a suvacho and we'll look at some of the English translations of this word as well as briefly looking at the 16 qualities. We won't go into such great detail given that we've done quite a lot of analysis in Duvacho, but um, one of the key things to bear in mind when we go through Suvacho is what kind of attitude do we need to actually manifest? And the attitude that is really important when it comes to Suvacho is that one is open that one remains open to listen, to hear, to actually take on what another person has kindly come and uh, instructed us or given us feedback about. And to remember that with this kind of openness, it doesn't mean that you have to just simply accept what is said. What it means is that you're willing to listen and then you're willing to go away and contemplate and investigate for yourself. Is this really true? Is this something that is hindering my path? Is what this person has seen uh, really to be observed? 
and and to actually have an attitude of of kindness to the person who is actually telling you these things. The other thing is to remember that the person that is coming to teach you, the person that is coming to instruct you, and the person that is willing to give you feedback, this kind of person is someone who is out of kindness is coming to do it. Always remember that, that usually it is for your benefit that they are doing it, not for their own. And even if it is something that um, is difficult, the fact that they come and tell you is actually, and if they come in a gentle way, then you know there is something authentic and genuine about this person, that this person isn't coming to actually shout at you or uh, make problems. They're actually coming to you usually in a very gentle manner. And so that's something to think of as a blessing rather than something to be afraid of. The other thing to say is sometimes these people can also be quite scared to give us feedback and the fact that they actually do is also quite a wondrous thing. So those are the two main things to bear in mind as we go through Suvacha. There are a number of English translations for Suvacha. Uh, the most common one is easy to instruct, also easy to admonish. Uh, then you have amenable, open or willing to hear feedback willing to listen, obedient. Obedient also appears quite a lot, although some people don't quite like that trans, trans, uh, translation. However, when you really get to the root of um, this particular quality, obedient is actually quite a, a good translation because if you're willing to receive feedback and you're willing to be instructed, then it follows that one becomes obedient to those instructions and to that feedback. You're obedient to actually change. Then you have meek, compliant, docile, yielding. So this is very much like the following two, non-defiant, non-resistant, that you don't res resist when you're approved. You, you yield when someone uh, gives you some constructive feedback or, or instruction and you're willing to follow the instructions. I think that's one of the things about Suvachal is that you're willing to follow instructions. So for example, if the Buddha says, this is the knowledge pathway and this is the instru instructions. If you do this, you should get this result. And if you do that, you will get that result. And it's willing to follow those instructions, such as what we're going through in Anumana Sutta, that you're willing to actually step by step go through. And then when you actually practice it, either in daily life, or actually you practice it even in meditation, you see the good results. And also you see the results if you if you follow the, the knowledge pathway that shows you where you go wrong, that you actually see, ah, this is what happens. And so part of being suvachal is that you're willing to follow the instructions. That's also part of being easy to instruct, easy to admonish. And if someone says to you, ah, you're not even following the precise instructions of the Buddha, you're willing to take that on to actually say, okay, let me look at that. And then you can say, do you have an example? And you know, if the person gives you the example, you investigate that, is that really true? What I find when it comes to Suvacho, the reason why people cannot understand the Dhamma, cannot realize the Buddha's teachings, is because something as simple as following the instructions that the Buddha gives, following the examples and the instructions that the Arahants give, people are unwilling to do it. And when you point that out, People actually say, but I don't need to do it. And you say, but actually, if you read the sutta, if you read how the Buddha taught this, this particular teaching, then this is what the Buddha said. This is what 
Venro Mahamogalana said. And if you don't actually apply it in daily life or in the actual formal meditation itself, then you're not going to get the results and you're not going to progress on the path. And there is always a danger that you're practicing the wrong pathway. Venerable Mahamogalana lists out the 16 qualities that make one easy to instruct or suvacho. The first is has no evil wishes and is not dominated by evil wishes. Two, does not glorify oneself nor has contempt for others. Three, not angry nor allows anger to overcome. Four, not angry nor resentful because of anger. Five, not angry nor stubborn because of anger. 6. Not angry and does not utter words bordering on anger. 7. When reproved does not resist the reprover. 8. When reproved does not denigrate the reprover. 9. When reproved does not counter reprove the reprover. 10. When reproved does not prevaricate, lead aside, nor show anger, hate and bitterness. And 11. When reproved does not fail to account for one's conduct. 12. Is not derogatory nor disparaging. 13. Is not envious nor stingy. 14. Is not fraudulent nor deceitful. 15. Is not obstinate and arrogant. And 16. Does not adhere to one's own views nor holds on to them tenaciously and relinquishes them with ease or relinquishes them easily. So this knowledge pathway is very, very significant in the fact that it's not breeding any mental stains and it's not leading to misconduct in terms of where those mental stains, if they did exist, would manifest themselves. And essentially what this Suvacho is saying is that one comes from the right view that when it comes to Buddha's teachings, that if someone is willing to instruct in the Buddha's teachings, if someone is willing to give constructive feedback in terms of practicing Buddha's teachings, that this kind of person who has these qualities, they actually are willing to bend. There's a malleability to the way that they practice and they're always open for this kind of feedback. And therefore, they don't actually have any evil wishes they don't have any of these qualities that manifest in anger or uh, rejecting any kind of feedback or instruction and therefore don't have the mental defilements that makes one um, easy to instruct. And at the end result of that is that the view that one holds is always the view that maybe I have it wrong and I'm willing to bend to see someone who I have faith and conviction in. And when it comes to the Buddha's teaching, what you're actually giving up is saying, I don't fully understand Buddha's view, but I have faith and confidence in Buddha's perfect enlightenment, that the fact that he is the perfect teacher, that whatever I have been able to practice, whether it's generosity or whether it's a renunciation, whether it's discipline, that whatever I have practiced, I've seen the good result. And so from that point of view, anything else that I can't see that I'm holding on to, I'm willing to submit to the Buddha's instruction and anybody who is willing to show me Buddha's instruction and Buddha's knowledge pathways and um, the method for practicing the Noble Eightfold Path. And I think that is the crux of 
this quality of suvacho, one is willing to bend uh, to see the Buddha's wise words and the words of the Arahants, which repeat that of the Buddha, and willing to be open to see where one is not perfect, that one actually admits to being a trainee, a seeker, and then on top of that to actually say, uh, in order to progress on this path, I'm willing to accept um, something that I haven't myself constructed and constructed from potentially a wrong place because, you know, as a seeker, one is not perfect. So I'm willing to accept it from the perfect perfected ones. There's also a reference to Suvacho uh, being easy to instruct in the Kalkachupama Sutta, which is in the Middle Link Discourses, and it's Discourse number 21, and it's the Discourse on the Simile of the Saw. Now in this, the Buddha is giving uh, teachings on qualities of uh, various uh, monks, and in this he makes reference to being easy to instruct, and he says this, I don't say that a mendicant is easy to instruct if they make themselves easy to instruct only for the sake of robes, alms food, lodgings and medicines and supplies for the sick. Why is that? Because when they don't get robes, alms food, lodgings and medicines and supplies for the sick, they're no longer easy to instruct. But when a mendicant is easy to instruct purely because they honour, respect, revere, worship and venerate the teaching, then I say that they're easy to instruct. So mendicants, you should train yourselves. We will be easy to instruct purely because we honour, respect, revere, worship and venerate the teaching, the Dhamma. That's how you should train. Now when you contemplate this teaching from the Buddha in the Kakachupama Sutta, what you realise is that if it's around personal gain, and this applies to lay practitioners as well, that it is for personal gain, whether it's reputational gain or material gain, then there's something not quite right around the practice, and it doesn't necessarily make you easy to instruct. So the Buddha is actually emphasizing um, that one needs to actually examine, particularly from a viewpoint of what you venerate, and in this case, if one wants to be easy to instruct, then it's quite clear that the, the honour, the respect, the veneration must go towards the Dhamma itself, the actual teaching. And so that's something pretty pointed that is given by the Buddha. The other thing to say about Suvacho is that quite often we are not so caught up in a sense of self when it comes to Suvacho. The Duvacho qualities, the ones of not being easy to admonish, not being easy to instruct, that comes from a place where you hold very strong views around this sense of self. You can see that when you go, you go down the qualities. But when you look at the qualities of Suvacho, you're actually very malleable. You're not actually trying to construct a self and maintain that self. And so when you're not um, always trying to control conditions and you're not trying to control how people perceive you, and you're not um, caught up in the thoughts and the views that come from that uh, juxtaposition, that central focal point, then what you find is that it's quite easy to be suvucho, that you're willing to listen to, to others, you're willing to be um, admonished and given feedback, and to actually see, you know, I actually genuinely want to follow the teaching of the Buddha. And so suvucho has that quality to it. We now come to the third part of the sutta, 
which is where Venerable Mahamogalana gives us a method for making an inference or a conclusion about oneself. And it is something that Venerable Mahamogalana strongly encourages that one should use this method for self-assessment to actually come to a conclusion about whether one has dhuvachal qualities or whether one has suvachal qualities. And so we'll have a look at uh, the method that he is uh, encouraging us to use. So in the sutta, Venerable Mahamogalana starts out by saying, now friends, one ought to infer about oneself in the following way. A person with evil wishes, who is dominated by evil wishes, is displeasing and disagreeable to me. If I were to have evil wishes and be dominated by evil wishes, I would be displeasing and disagreeable to others. One who knows this should arouse his mind thus, I shall not have evil wishes or be dominated by evil wishes. So he goes on to go through each of the 16 Dovich qualities and the same uh, formula is given that if you see somebody who has one, of the, one or any of these unwholesome duvichur qualities, then you wouldn't find it agreeable. You'll actually find it quite troubling. And you'll actually at some point be so turned off by you know, this person demonstrating that quality, particularly if they're in Dhamma, because we're all on this path and, and really sometimes you want to go and tell someone, I really can't stand that uh, quality that you're demonstrating. And so he's turning it around, Venerable Mahamogalana in this inference method, he's saying, turn it around and have a look at that. If you were to have it, what would other people think of you? They wouldn't like you. They would find it displeasing and disagreeable. And at some point they would be quite fed up with it. And so when you know that, what uh, Venerable Mahamogalana is saying is that one should actually think, I shouldn't have this type of quality you know, any one of those 16 Dovichal qualities. And so this is his method for coming to a conclusion about oneself. So it's actually quite useful because it's not just on the Dhamma path, it's actually in everyday life that all of these qualities usually mean that you're very difficult to talk to because you're not actually listening. Or you're also someone who doesn't take feedback very well, whether it's something that's helpful to you or something that's just constructive. And Usually in everyday life, we do come upon people who are quite resistant or quite angry or have, you know, some of these other qualities that uh, are envious, jealous, stingy, all kinds of things. And what you normally notice, if you're really honest, is that you don't feel like you can trust the person. You don't want to get close to them. You don't really want to call them a close friend. And so when you turn that around and you look at that from their perspective, if you were to have any of these qualities, then it's equally the same thing. And so it's quite a useful um, inference method to actually overcome some of these qualities. The final part of the sutta is really around self-review. And Venerable Mahamogalana is very encouraging about review in the sense that this is something that is not just a once-off, that you look at the Anumana Sutta and that's it. In, in fact, if you read the commentary to this Sutta, this Sutta is known as Bhikkhu Patimoka, um, and it's often advised that a Bhikkhu, like an ordained monastic, whether it's a monk or nun, would review themselves at least three times a day, if not two, if not once a day. And I think that's equally applicable to lay practitioners because 
when you think about these qualities and what we've been through um, so far, you can actually see that there is much benefit. There's something to be gained by being open to feedback, being open to overcome unwholesome qualities. So that's something to bear in mind as we go through this final section of the sutta on self-review. So Venerable Mahamogalana begins by saying, Now friends, one should review oneself thus. Do I have evil wishes or am dominated by evil wishes? If when one reviews oneself, one knows I have evil wishes, am dominated by evil wishes, then one should make an effort to abandon those evil unwholesome states. But if one reviews oneself and one knows I don't have evil wishes and dominated by evil wishes, then I can abide happy and glad, training day and night in wholesome states. So in this review process, it's really a case of asking the question, do I have any of the 16 duvacha qualities, the unwholesome qualities? And when you look at yourself with honesty and you can say um, you have them, then what he's encouraging is to make an effort to abandon them. And the abandoning process comes from wisdom. It comes from inferring that it's not a good thing to actually cultivate and uh, make a habit out of. It's, it's not a good thing. And so this is where the effort comes in to actually want to abandon these unwholesome qualities. Then it goes on. But if, when one reviews oneself, one knows I don't have any of those 16 duvacha qualities, then one can abide happy and glad, training day and night in, in wholesome states. So when it comes to this review process, it's a cleaning up process. It's a method of actually making sure that from day to day, one is easy to instruct, one is um, easy to give feedback to, one understands that this method of instruction is very, very important to the process of progress on the Noble Eightfold Path. And so that's where the review process comes from. It's actually quite straightforward, but I guess the challenge will be once you know this, whether you actually do it every day. And I think what is said about Anumana is that with this sutta, the teaching in this sutta, it can bear great fruit when you start to really open up to this particular teaching. One starts to soften, one becomes more malleable, one becomes much easier to actually share Dhamma with and also the understanding process actually escalates because when you're open and easy to instruct, what happens is you develop very good friendships in Dhamma. And with those friendships, as we've seen, that being easy to admonish, easy to give feedback to, having good spiritual friends, it's a symbiotic relationship. And through that process, you all grow. And so that's something very important to bear in mind. Now, when you don't have someone there with you, that you're more isolated or something, then this becomes a self-review process. So it never really stops that if you aren't able to connect with Kalyanamittas, then what you do is you do this process of self-review. And so Venerable Mahamogalana gives this final simile as a visual depiction of self-review, really. And what it says is, just as when a man or a woman, young, youthful, fond of ornaments, on viewing the image of their own face in a clear, bright mirror, or in a basin of clear water, sees a smudge or a blemish on it, they make an effort to remove it. But if they see no smudge or blemish on it, they become glad thus. It is a gain for me that it is clean. So too, when one reviews oneself thus, 
one sees that all the unwholesome qualities are abandoned in oneself, then one can abide happy and glad, training day and night in, un in wholesome states. So this simile is actually quite useful because we all look in the mirror. And, you know, when you look in the mirror or look at something that gives you the reflection of yourself, it comes from a place of uh, usefulness in that if one is quite honest, you can actually see what needs to be seen. And when you go through the list of duvicha qualities, the ones which are unwholesome, you can genuinely look at it and see whether there's a blemish. And the beauty of Buddha's teaching, and likewise Venerable Mahamogalana, is that they always present a method of instruction that shows if you do this, then you end up with these unwholesome things. But if you do this by abandoning, by not having those unwholesome qualities, then you get the better result. And when you get the better result, then you can be happy about that. And in the case of the Anumana Sutta, you know, after what we've been through, that all these qualities, when it makes you difficult to instruct, it's actually a hindrance. It's a um, barrier to making progress on the path. And when it comes to even understanding the teachings of the Buddha, it's very difficult to understand when you're so caught up in these other worldly conditions and uh, these other self-interests. And so you're not really willing to listen. You're not ready to listen. And even if you are listening, your mind is focused on other things. And so it's very good to hold up the mirror, to look at oneself and to say, well, you know, where do I stand with this? Are there blemishes? And when there aren't blemishes, then, you know, that's really quite a gain. As it says, you know, it becomes a gain for you. And very much like the hidden treasure that Radhathera was actually um, being referred to in terms of the Buddha's verse in the Dhammapada. So this last part to this talk on the Anumana Sutta and why we can't understand Dhamma or make progress on the path has to do with just reconfirming how do we meditate on this sutta. I think it's pretty clear as we've gone gone through, but I think it's good to summarize to make sure that you know the steps and, and what needs to be done. So we start with contemplating each of the 16 duvachal qualities one by one. And the thing that you ask in the meditation is, do I have this unwholesome quality? And after you ask that question, when you see this unwholesome quality in another person, you ask yourself, do I find it displeasing or disagreeable? Then if you yourself have this quality, then the question to then ask is, wouldn't other people find it equally displeasing and disagreeable? So that's pretty much the meditation that if you discover that you have this quality, whether it's something you've done in the past or something that is in the present, that you actually honestly admit it and you bring up your own examples to say, oh, this is this is when it actually kicked in. And it's very important that one actually understands each of the 16 qualities that we've been through today, because then it makes it easier to actually see where it comes in. And there's a lot more in you know certain parts of those qualities to actually understand. So it's good to revisit that. And then when you meditate on it, you allow your own examples to come in, because I think the learning process is really through seeing it from your own eyes, seeing what you have done, seeing what is still active now. And once you run that inference pro process that Venerable Mahamogalana um, has taught us, it's really showing that these are undesirable qualities. They're actually very unhelpful and very obstructive. 
So when you see that, and you generally know that, and it's very often you see it because you don't like it in somebody else, then you, you know, turn it around and look at look at yourself. And then at that point, the decision or the intention to abandon that quality becomes more authentic. And I think that's what it is. When you make an effort to abandon it, you make a strong intention or determination to say, I don't find this quality useful. It's actually very obstructive and I want to abandon it. So in future, I'm not going to do what I've done before. The second part of um, the meditation is really about in the absence of the unwholesome quality. So we've done this before in the Vatubhama Sutta where you identify what that quality is, you go through the process of your own examples and you see how obstructive and difficult and troubling it is and you, you're actually prepared to let it go. And so what you need to do to round off the meditation is always to abide in the happier place that once it is gone that in the absence of the unwholesome quality you acknowledge and recognize its absence and so in its absence what is there is the suvacha qualities the qualities which make you easy to instruct which make you willing to accept feedback and admonishment and that's where the meditation really begins to activate because once you rejoice those qualities, the, the fact that you don't have the un unwholesome quality, you can then rejoice the fact that the wholesome quality is present. And you know that it will enable you to be easy to instruct and to understand the teachings of the Buddha. And essentially, it will help you to make progress on the Noble Eightfold Path. So that in a nutshell is the meditation. It's not so difficult. None of the Buddha's teachings are really that difficult, but it's how we understand what we're meant to do as well as take the time and make the effort to actually do the contemplation and then when you do the contemplation to actually round it off by seeing and rejoicing the wholesome part of it and from that place if you keep practicing this meditation make it part of your vehicle you know in terms of um, the actual path to progress then I think what you'll find is when we go through the Karaniya Metta Sutta, you'll find that with Metta Bhavana, with the cultivation of loving kindness, Anumana plays a huge role. And there are shortcuts even to the Karaniya Metta because a lot of these qualities, once you've actually cleaned them up, it actually means you can do shortcuts to cultivating Metta. And that's something for another, another day. But for now, I'll end with, um, I think that's all I really have to say about Anumana today. Let's share the merit and the blessings from this time that we've been studying the Anumana Sutta. Let's share the merit with all sentient beings. May all beings be well. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings find the right view to be able to practice the Noble Eightfold Path. And blessings of the Triple Gem to all of you. May you be happy and well. Theravan Saranai.